Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. All right, here we go. Live streaming. No idea what happened then, but here we go. We are live. Hey. There we go. Apologies, folks. The little man on the wheel in the back is running flat out. All right. It's a little bit after 10.30 on the West Coast. It's a little yeah. bit after 1.30 on the East Coast. I took a nap while we were waiting, so I'm fully rested. And I, for the first time in a long time, I've done a whole lot of preparation. I've got veggies that are actually fruits. What's, what's ah, happening, Phyllis? Look at that. Franks and beans. Uh, not much. Today, Jeff Bezos went to space in what looked like a giant penis. That was interesting. Looks sharp. Yeah, he looked good. I look, man. I think Earthy. that's pretty cool. I'll tell you what was amazing was the cameras. Oh yeah, I haven't seen any of the footage of it. Is it good, dude? You could see the whole thing. It's like I don't know how many feet, three hundred sixty thousand feet in the air, and you can like watch the whole thing happen. It's crazy. Almost like I, I don't have to go up there myself. <laughs> they seemed like they were having a lot of fun up there. I would go up there when like ticket to like. 400 bucks so we're gonna need to work on the technology a little what's uh what are we talking about today fellas what's what's your topic jt you got some veggies of course i wouldn't show up if i didn't uh, <laughs> i've got uh we're gonna be tackling the l feral problem if, so we're getting complex systems going i don't know what that is what do you what do you got bill I'm probably just going to listen to Jake and try to figure out what he had to say. And then if it comes to me last, I don't know, we can talk about PSTH blowing up or some other mm. thing in the value world. Yeah. Innings, we need an innings update too at some point. I don't know, man. There's a lot of cheap stuff out there. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I'm kind of of that view too. I'm in a little bit of two minds because the... I tweeted this out yesterday, fear and greed drop below 20 historically, like not going back very far. The data only goes back to sort of post 2009. It's like 2010 or 2011, at least according to the Wayback Machine. And uh, it's been a pretty good indicator of when to buy. I appreciate how silly that is given we're like 3% off all-time highs and it's giving you that that little signal, but it did do the same. It's done that before. It did that in 2013 and anybody can take a look at 2013. It was a pretty good year. I don't know that uh, any of this stuff is particularly helpful. I'm just kind of interested in this indicator as a, a, a an objective way of um, saying how nervous everybody is about the level of the market. And I don't know what it means that it's come off so little over uh, it's, I mean, it's so, showing so much fear given it's come off so little probably that just speaks to how the sort of the lack of volatility in the market that it's been such a good market now for whatever it is, 15 months or something. Well, it just seems to me like months are, those... months are years. <laughs> well, yeah, particularly 15 months, but the 13 years before that have been pretty good too. The, um, I mean, tech had sort of its sell off earlier in the year. Now like value cyclicals are having theirs. I don't know. This just feels like normal shit to me. I've been buying some stuff. Yeah, when I when I run my my higher quality screen, it looks to me like it's a uh, there's a there's a, an unusually large amount of pretty good stuff in there. So there's undervalued, high quality stuff kind of in abundance. I found Bitcoin not catching a bid kind of interesting. Where's Bitcoin right now? I think it's like under Below thirty thousand. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I had the whole you know like if you assume, which I don't, but let's just assume that the headlines are correct. And like the market was actually selling off because of the Delta variant. Uh, this is my attempt to get uh, us demonetized yet again. Um, then you Lambda. would think. Then you would think that, uh, like I, I thought that maybe a logical conclusion would be more stimulus, which would mean weaker fiat, which means Bitcoin should catch a bid. But I was not right. 
That's macro, mate. It's really hard. Yeah. Well, that's why I don't mess around with it for the most part. Once you get to that second, which means you're in trouble. Yeah, that's fair. We should have macro people on the show. It would really help ratings. It does. That's true. Macro yeah, really, people, people love people macro. love the macro. You got to look at uh, the the company that's taking Whitney Tilson's newsletter. Uh, I mean, not like, yeah, not like him particularly. There's like six or seven of them. The data on the macro newsletters that they write is crazy. Crazy. The thing about macro is it can sound, it's a lot like politics. Like it's just your, your political views inform your macro views. And I don't yeah. think that's a particularly good way to invest. Yeah. I've been to it's some a macro- decent way to write a newsletter though. Yeah, it is. It's it's a fun way of writing. I've I've been to some macro conferences uh, as Chris Cole's plus one carrying his bags, and uh, they're fun. But the uh, the the macro as it's practiced by the big boys, it looks more like special situations. Well, there's so time immemorial. There's been demand for prognostication, whether it was the chicken guts or Oracle mac- Delphi, the or- Pedia macro calls i mean that's just people have always wanted to think that someone else knew what the future was going to hold and i don't think that'll go away either no it's unfortunate you got to be careful of eclipses earthquakes uh plagues all those sort of things my kids are watching Ominous. youtube and some creepy guy came on and said that the end of days is near in november you you know everyone was gonna die he was in a ski mask wow that's, Thanks, that's YouTube. What's after Peppa that was Pig. Fun. Yeah, dude. No, not Peppa. Peppa's a G. You can't mess with her. It's some like silly uh, ninja kids or whatever the kids are watching. You know what I like about that? They're like, well, why does that kid's dad play with him? Well, maybe because he's paid to, you little shit. Shut up. I got a job. He loves his kids. I need to go on a podcast and I make no money for I don't feel this strong really hard. That's right. <laughs> Uh, that's not very nice. I, I, I got some. I got some. I got some veggies. So I'm going to take. I'm going to take away with some veggies. Uh, I think there's an interesting lesson in this one, and I kind of backed into this after a conversation that JT and I had last week. But uh, this is an old article from 2010. I'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, but it's on uh, Robert Scott. No, you won't. And <laughs> yeah, no, I won't. And he's and he's. Uh, but you can search Scott Scurvy and something else, and you probably find it. Robert Scott. Uh, had a run at the South Pole in the early 1900s, about 1911, 1912, which is uh, basically modern history um, because they were they were um, they were doing it, f- thinking that they were pretty modern. Like we, we we basically solved scurvy in 1747. James Lind, who was a Royal Navy surgeon. Um, pointed out that people who ate citrus fruits didn't get scurvy on these trips and it took about 40 years. Then the Royal Navy uh, man all of their ships carry some citrus and it basically solved scurvy because scurvy is caused by a lack of vitamin C. And so uh, this is 1911. So this is a long way afterwards. And they, they had this conversation with one of the ships. All of the, the, the trip was ill-fated. Half of them died. The ones who didn't die did something in a little bit that I'll to give the whole thing away just yet but basically they they headed out on the ice they they, were, they had scurvy before they got there they headed out on the ice so they all died of scurvy including scott and uh they, they recorded the conversations that uh scott would have or other people would have with the surgeons on the ship about their views on what was causing the scurvy and the funny thing is that we sort of thought that we'd solved this you know, a hundred plus years earlier, 200 plus years earlier. And it turned out that we hadn't. So all we figured out was that there was this association between citrus fruits and, uh, and scurvy. And we know, we knew that if you ate it, but we'd known that for a very long time, all James Lynn did was codify that kind of information before that even Vasco de Gama knew that when he headed out on his voyage in 1497, that they should take some citrus with them. And it had been, known but the exact mechanism wasn't known we didn't know it was vitamin c we didn't know about vitamin c and so we the royal navy mandates these citrus it was it was sort of an advantage it allowed their ships to stay out on a blockade of of napoleon uh for years at a time uh, where the other navies couldn't do that because they didn't know about the citrus fruit protecting you from scurvy so 
what happened in this 1911, 1912 trip that caused these guys to all die of scurvy, given that we'd known about it for so long beforehand? Well, there'd been a variety of things, uh, confounding factors in between. And so one of them was ships got faster and faster. And in the early 1800s, mid 1800s, they became steamships, which were very, very quick. So it would take a couple of weeks and you don't get scurvy in a couple of weeks. It takes longer than that. And so mm. it, it was unnecessary to have vitamin C at all on the ship because you're getting fresh food before you left. You get fresh food when you get to the other side, you don't get scurvy. And so that's the sort of the reason why these other things started happening because we just didn't know that it was superfluous through this period. So lemons were difficult to get hold of. So they, they had an abundance of these limes and they thought that the association was acidity. So it was a lack of sort of um, acid in the blood that was causing um, scurvy. And so you had these limes and they're more, more acidic than, than lemons are. But the problem is they've got about a quarter of the vitamin C of lemons. And then in addition to that, they stored them in these, they, you, know, you don't want to take the whole lime with you. So you juice the lime and then you stick it in this um, open air pot and there are copper piping taking it from one place to another. And the copper piping denudes the lime of its vitamin C. And it's already got not much vitamin C. So basically they eliminated all the vitamin C, but it didn't matter because they were getting everywhere so quickly that nobody was getting scurvy. Now, fast forward to 1911, they are following all of the things that they should do. They've got their, they've got their lime that's been stripped of all of its vitamin C. They head out. They're already, people are getting the, the telltale signs, a little bit of white around the edges of the gums, a little bit of red, starting to see old sores open up. They're stuck on the ice in the dark. Uh, half of the party heads off to try. They basically almost all die. The ones Wait, what did they try to do? You froze up for me. Did he fry, oh, freeze up for you, Jake? They're trying to get to the like South Pole. This. Okay, all right, okay. They're, they're making their assault on the South Pole, so... They head out on the ice. Um, the ones who stay back on the ship, they they sort of start losing their minds and they decide they're just going to eat whatever they can get their hands on. So they eat polar bears. They eat whatever. You, I don't know if there are polar bears in the south, but they eat whatever they yeah, can get the their south hands pole, on. I'm going with it. I don't know. It might just be. I forget that 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 part that I might have just added that just <laughs> that doesn't destroy the story. So basically, if you eat fresh meat, you get some vitamin C from the fresh meat. So. They didn't get scurvy. Uh, they didn't really know. And so they, they, there was a terrible expedition. All of the guys died, including Scott. Half of the crew gets back and they sort of tell the story. And once again, they have to go back to the drawing board and figure out what is the connection between citrus and, and scurvy. And that's when they figure out that it's, in fact, vitamin C. But they had these other theories because we just sort of become aware of bacteria is it bacteria in the blood and that and therefore the acidity should that that should kill the bacteria is it this sort of uh termine poisoning is it this uh mysterious kind of poisoning that everybody's getting so it turns out that it's vitamin c um and if you get that you 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 just don't get scurvy but you if you don't get that even as someone who's on land if you don't get enough vitamin c because you don't eat enough fresh fruit you can get you can get scurvy to this day so I just think it's an interesting um, illustration of uh, how there are various confounding factors combined together to, um, to make us realize how little we actually know. And it's one of the concerns that I always have when I'm you know, looking at a company, looking at going through the valuation process. What, what are we actually trying to find? What, are we, what do we know about these things? And what, what can you learn from even reasonably long periods of time in the market, 10 plus years that um, that you know to be true that are just con confounded by all these other factors. So, what do you guys think of that? I don't. I definitely don't want to get scurvy. It sounds like an awful way to go. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound fun at all. They detail it in this thing. It's it's pretty nasty. It's uh, that they describe the death as a welcome death by the time you get to the end of it. Oh, that's terrible. I don't want to welcome death. It is amazing the uh, the diffusion of information and how slow it was back then, and you had to kind of keep relearning the same lessons. Well, we knew we knew that it was vitamin C, and it had just sort of been like a uh, an old not a old wives' tale, but just like received wisdom that people knew that if you ate the 
Vasco da Gama in like 1497. So uh, 413 years beforehand, he knew that if you took fresh fruit, you'd be okay. But as they were trying to like, just they were trying to refine it down, make it more efficient and then refining it down and making it more efficient, they completely removed the thing that was keeping people safe. So there is some interesting parallels there with um, fragility and kind of Lindy effect of, you know, what what's worked for a long time. And then you think you understand why, but maybe you actually don't understand why. And and therefore you're you end up creating a much more fragile situation for yourself. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I also agree with uh, with the person here who says that uh, the cure for scurvy is stimulus. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah, you could print scurvy away, no problem. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, I think generally, I, I think um, what what you're somewhat drawing a parallel to is, you know, are you take you take a risk, you have an outcome, are you right for the right reasons? Are you right for the wrong reasons? What do we actually know that's going on within companies? What do we actually know that's going on like anywhere? I have no good thoughts on this, so you're welcome for my comment. But I can tell you it's something that I struggled with a lot over, like, you know, sort of my break or whatever. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I've been, I've said to people uh, recently, like, I don't know if I know what I'm doing at all. And I think people think that it's like a cute thing to say. Uh, I honestly mean it. I don't know how, how, like, much I can say it to people until they like listen, but you know, I've, I've had a, a year, the whole reason that I left the bank, the entire fucking reason was because I didn't want to sell at the bottom. And not only did I not sell at the bottom, I traded a macro event pretty well. Um, am I a good investor? Because that I have no fucking clue, man. Like I, I have no idea whether or not what I did was replicable, I have no idea whether or not I should theoretically be proud of it. I don't know. You know, somebody asked me the other day, like, because I bought some more Curate, they were like, well, is it the best stock in the market? I have no idea. Like, I can't answer these questions. I leave that shit to the pros. All I know is I'm trying to make money in the market when I see blood or when I see an opportunity that I, that I see. Um, I have a lot more trader in me than I wish I, I did. Like, I wish I was more of an investor. Guess what? I'm kind of not. I mean, I'd, I'd like to fancy myself one, but I got a long way to go. Is that wrong? I don't know. There's a lot of... How many, how many do I actually know? Um, and sometimes that's why I have an itchier trigger finger than I otherwise would. And sometimes I get into things before they're fully diligenced. Like, but... Sometimes I think you have to in the market. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, in case you don't know or can't tell, I'm like very conflicted about a lot of big things that I've been thinking about. And to your point on what do you know? Like, what do you know? You know, I, I, I'm not certain. So you're welcome for that mind dump. Is that kind of what you were going for? Yeah, look, I, I think it's, I, I think, you know, nobody's what, not going to be happy until you're crying. So just, <laughs> what, well, it's going to take a while. What we're all trying to drive at is to come up with the best uh, conception of value. Well, this is what I'm trying to do, trying to come up with the best conception of value, uh, you know, over probably the nearest term, the next three to five years. And if you think in those terms, then, you know, that gets you out of the stuff that's sort of, a, I think it gets you out of the value traps a little bit because you're looking at stuff that should be still growing on a, on a, um, on a revenue basis and it probably uh, gets you out of stuff that's overvalued too because you're still trying to look out three to five years and work out where you're going to get to if you do that. The problem is that it's very difficult to tease out over shorter periods of time what are in fact the drivers of value. And it, it, you know, it does change over time. And I, the, the whole market has thought it's you know, various stages. It's the leverage buyout value, uh, you know, conglomerates, combining all of those sort of things together like the our, our view of it has changed and it's i don't know if we've landed on the correct one now i just don't know i i, I get I, I like you i've spent a long time in the, looking at this stuff and i'm i don't know if i've advanced any from where i started out 
I will go to my grave saying that mis- like for now, value investors misunderstand leverage. That is one place that I think that value investors massively miss underpricing of common equity because of, of leverage. And I think that maybe the reason is that like their Bibles were written when debt had covenants and it actually mattered. And like, <laughs> it doesn't now. Right. And like it, the interest rates are somewhat non-existent. So you have no covenants and very low rates. Like, can it go wrong? Sure. It can go wrong. But like, I don't know. Today I was looking at Tiva, which I'm not saying to go out and buy. I don't know shit about, you know, generic drugs. But if you look at that cap structure, um, McKesson like just settled. If you think they can settle, like, I don't know. You got, um, you can have some pretty interesting outcomes when you have that kind of leverage on business on, on the market cap, like on the common equity. Now, you know, a lot of that's going to be encumbered, right? So um, the, the enterprise value to free cash flow to the firm is not screamingly cheap, but the common equity is compressed in a lot of situations. Uh, I think Transdime was one of those situations last year. So, you know, but I don't know, like, it's so great. So Transdime worked. Is that because I'm smart or did I just get lucky by a bailout? I don't fucking know, man. Like, it's a question I'll never be able to answer. But what I do know is that it was a fortunate bet. Part of the problem um, with making any kind of prognostications or, you know, final con- drawing any final conclusions on the significance of debt or otherwise or discount rates or otherwise, is I think that we're in this, you know, this sort of, this is going to be my bias, but I think that interest rates are probably below where they would otherwise be freely floating in the market. Now, does that mean that you use that discounted interest rate in your where it is in your model, which gives you these fantastical values? And clearly, like that was the right thing to do for the last five years was to use this very aggressive discount rate. Well, not very aggressive, just that was the alternative in the market. Do you assume that it goes back roughly to where it was over an extended period of time? Because we're valuing these things on 10 plus years of of earnings. Does that mean you 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 think well, that over that period we're going to have some mean reversion back to roughly like what it has been in the past, and if you do, then you've then you've undervalued these things. And I I don't know what the right answer is, but I, I do think that part of it, I think that if you hit the system like this with you pin those interest rates too low, it does make everything makes everybody go crazy. It makes people borrow more money than they otherwise would. You're incentivized to do that. Borrow a whole lot of money and buy back your stock. That's going to make. And if you're in, if you, particularly if you're a CEO of a big company and you get paid on that basis. Yeah, that's the, you, you go where you're incentive, you, you do what you're incentivized to do. So you're going to carry a whole lot of debt and it hasn't mattered yet. To be fair though, um, I mean, you're like the, the 30 year right now is at 186. Like I, I don't understand not issuing the shit out of bonds, especially when credit spreads are tight, because there's no way that you can argue to me that 30 year equity capital costs less than 5%, right? So like, if you're interested in maximizing the value of the firm, uh, I mean, especially when you have no covenants, like I just don't understand why you wouldn't push the debt markets as hard as you possibly can. In the context of the prevailing interest rates and uh, equity risk premium, it makes complete sense. But that's the point that I'm making that it's, yeah. it's completely sensible inside the context of what you're doing now. But the question is, if those interest rates move out and you have some sort of floating rate or you have to hit that, you have to make that bullet payment at some point in the future with more expensive debt, that's a different kind of consideration, right? Yeah, but I, I guess that like where, so I think that there are a couple answers to this. One, I think you really have to look at how the debt matures. Like you don't want a huge debt maturity in three years with a business that could undergo like some cash flow problems in the interim. Because, um, you know, then you get like cross defaulted if you can't uh, refi. But um I I guess that I just have this conflict in me that's like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but also there is no evidence to me that there's any shortage of money looking for deals. So I just like whether or not that's because it's a, uh, you know, government, you know, it has their finger on the scale or whatever. Like I got to play the cards as they are. I can't. And and like, to me, 
the answer may be something like, okay, well, I'm going to address this in my asset allocation. It's not on balls long equity right now, which may be like a big mistake at a top or whatever. I've fair, fair it's criticism. A, it's only a top if it goes down from here. Yeah. Well, fair criticism to those that say that that's a mistake. Uh, I, I uh, internally think about that a little bit, but maybe like the answer is to hedge something in a different way, because if you're going to argue that rates are going to go to six or something like that, then I'm going to tell you everything collapses. Like there's no, the housing market's gone. Your pension funds are fucked. Your equity markets are down. Like it just, the world doesn't work. So maybe there's a different uh, hedge there, but within an equity allocation, I don't think that you can put money out the door and assume that rates are going to mean revert to anything North of three and, and, get anything done that's right yeah so or you're buying lower quality companies yeah which that violates kind of like what buffett said about debt right like don't go out on the risk curve to get more yield i would argue the same thing for equities like i mean this is kind of what charlie's been saying to people forever like bring your expectations down now they haven't done it at berkshire so that begs a different question but other than that how is the play mrs lincoln (laughs) Well, that's kind of what I, I don't know. That's I think it's a really interesting conversation. Like how to deal with this is a really tough thing to answer. Very difficult. Financial it, repression is real. Yeah. Yeah. But gonna... I, what does that mean? Like, what does financial repression mean? It means if you can't get a reasonable return on your asset in less risky ways you have to go looking for it other places and you then bid up the price of those things to the point where you're, you're chasing yield right off of into much riskier situations than what the the price of that. So, you know, S and P 500 at a 3% yield, you might be able to argue is, uh, is chasing a bit, even if, yeah. And because treasuries are at one point, eight or whatever for 30 year. And if you think about equity as a, as a 50 year, let's say bond, um, you know, maybe 3% kind of slots in with that, but does that mean that's right? I don't know. Well, what would cause one, you know, that what, what are like, what's, what's going to cause the, the 30 year to go higher than where it is? Because if it's growth, that's not that bad. Inflation. Yeah, I mean, that that could be a problem. But I don't know, like, I guess that I don't know that the, the debt market's not buying the inflation story, even though labor is super tight. You would think that um, inflation's not implausible off that, even though I have been in camp transitory. Can you read what the, what the, uh, in, what the debt market is doing? Like, can you can you read from it? Is there a signal in there? Or is the signal um, destroyed by the fact that the Fed's in there with its finger on the scale? I just don't think that they can move that big of a market in in it, like in the thirty year or the ten year. Like, I don't, I just, I don't buy the Fed thing. I think that's people want to have a tinfoil hat on, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm open to that. I, I attribute it more to, but it's their explicit. Like, what does the what does the what does the FOMO do? FOMC. What does the FOMC do? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, I don't know how, I don't know how deep the market is and how, how deep the Fed is. It's all at the margin, right? It's all at the margin. Yeah. But that's, I guess, um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about in this. I really don't. So I'll just stop talking. I mean, either the Fed has an influence or it doesn't. And if it does have an influence, then it's not a conspiracy theory to say that it's influencing the market, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I guess my conclusion to that is like, why in the world did that influence ever go away? Like, I, I don't well, understand. You might lose control of it. Like, the, the, this is all, it, this is the, if inflation does in fact pop up, you know, then they, they can't be having negative, I mean, they've got negative real rates now, but like at some point you have to lift it. Otherwise there's going to be, there is going to be some sort of refusal to participate in that market. Okay. Well, I guess that the other way that I would maybe say that I think about this is like, I've, I've been looking at Swedish match a little bit. You know anything about Swedish match? I just know the original story written right. by Frank Portnoy. Well, they have this product called Zin. Okay. Zin, my, my degenerate friends and we'll met, if you're listening, shout out to you guys. I love you guys, but you are degenerates with this stuff. 
uh, they, they're like these nicotine pouches. They have no powder. They got no tobacco. They got nothing. Highly addictive. Taste great. My friends rip them like they're going out of style. I put one in my mouth in the golf course. I won't do it again. I couldn't even swing a golf club and I don't need another addiction in my life. No, thank you. But, um, I, uh, like that company to me, the, the probability that rates destroys wealth in that investment, given the fact that I think that they could probably grow mid single digits for 10 years, generating 70% gross margins and 30% net income margins. I mean, I guess I could keep cash rather than that or something like that. It doesn't have to be that bet, but like, I just don't, I can't run from a boogeyman that I'm afraid of and still keep up with the wealth treadmill. And maybe that's the exact problem, but um, man, that's a huge opportunity cost. If you missed out on these 10 years, like you really have to be right on the back end. And I don't know that that would put me specifically in the right frame of mind to make cognitive, like cogent decisions going forward. I think that's right. I mean, if there's good or good deals to be done, I think you still have to do them. It's just more of a general gestalt of, are we to expect headwinds or tailwinds from here? And I, I personally think you could make a pretty reasonable argument that people should be lowering their expectations and expect some headwinds from here for either we have to grow into this valuation or we have to reduce the valuation. One of those two things kind of has to happen from this level. So um, it's, it's not clear to me that which one we're going to have, but um, but if you have good deals to be done on an individual basis, I think you have to keep pulling the trigger and regardless of what else is happening. I mean, the world is big enough that there will be smart, interesting things to do regardless of whatever else is happening with all this macro stuff. Yeah, I guess I, I guess that I'm not sure that the market solved, I, the market would eventually solve the outcome that I'm going to describe. But um, something that worries me is like what what ends up happening is the government starts to try to say, well, you know, look at the wealth inequality and we got to figure that out. And then you get some stupid top-down economy. And I hate to like call out the socialist card because I debate this with my in-laws all the time. But, uh, you know, it's like fixing the problem could cause more problems than the problem. And then, you know, you would think that that could create uh, some sort of re-rating downward and that would be a pretty bad scenario because the wealth gap is unacceptable. I think it always was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. But I don't know. You're really going to, I don't know. We can go back and forth on March, but I think the government did the right thing last year. Let's do your veggies, JT, because we're going to run out of time. Otherwise, this is a good conversation. Good topic, Toby. You bailed me out of talking PSTH. It's going to be surprising how well this is going to tie together, almost as if we planned it, which assuredly we did not plan. (laughs) No. Okay, so this is the uh, kind of famous at this point, L. Farrell problem, E-L-F-A-R-O-L, in case you want to look it up yourself and actually learn about it as opposed to my version of it. But um, so L. Farrell is this bar that is near in Santa Fe, um, and it used to feature Irish music on Thursday nights. And there's this uh, economic professor at the Santa Fe Institute, which... uh, his name is Brian Arthur. And by the way, like if, if you could, uh, if you had a time machine and you could force yourself to go back to like, I think it was 1998 when he wrote this paper on increasing returns of scale. Uh, if you could have gone back and read that and like said like, listen, this one's important. Like, forget all this other stuff. Read this. Make sure you read it. Like at like you were Biff in with the sports almanac. <laughs> uh, that would have been a very, very lucrative uh, idea for you to have internalized in 1998. Anyway, so Brian Arthur, he wrote that paper. Um, So he's from Belfast originally, and he likes going to hear this Irish music of his youth at El Farrell, this bar. However, he doesn't like going when there's a bunch of like, you know, drunk lunatics at the bar uh, and it's too crowded. So uh, suppose that 100 people like going uh, or suppose 100 people are considering going, but None of them want to go if more than 60 people are going to be at the bar because it's an unpleasant experience then. But less than 60, it's quite pleasant. And what if we, we pretend that over the past 10 weeks, 
here are the number of people who have gone. 15, 18, 83, 66, 45, 76, 67, 56, 88, 37. So we have we have five good nights and five bad nights over the last 10 weeks when you to have gone to go see this Irish music. Well, some people now these 100 people who are deciding, should I go to the bar or not on when on Thursday evening? They all have their own model of what might be the right reason for them to go or not. Right. And so maybe some people would would use just last week's and say like, oh, well, it's 37 last week. Therefore, it's likely to be below 60 this week. I'm going to go. Now, what if some people said, well, I'm going to take the average of those last 10 weeks, which happens to be 55, and they decide, well, I'm going to go. That's below 60. Or maybe there's some people who maybe take the average of the last four weeks, which would have been 62, and they decide, well, I'm not going to go. Well, <clears throat> there are different methods of prediction end up in this ecology of prediction. So they're, all of these prediction models are sort of competing with each other for accuracy. And you know, some of the models will live and some of them will die based on how accurate they are. And people are, are they're evolving their models, you know, with new data to try to figure out what's the right thing to do. And the thing is, is if they all shared the same rational model, what would end up happening, it would end up negating itself because everyone would end up predicting that few people would go and they would go and that would be wrong. Or they'd all be predicting that too many people are going and no one would go. And then it actually would have been a good time to go. Right. So they have a way of canceling themselves out. So each and in each model is affected by the prediction of other people's models. Right. So it's a uh, you end up getting really you end up with chaos in this complex adaptive system. And this happens to basically describe how the market works as well. Uh, people have their predictive models and everyone's competing against each other with their models. And there's a there's an ecology of models out there competing with each other to try to figure out, is this a good time to go to the bar or not, right? Is this a good time to buy or not? Um, and so actually, uh, Merrill Lynch did this study for a long time, and then they got acquired by B of A. And so the last, um, the last publication of it I could find was from 2019. But what they did was they survey institutional investors to see what factors are they using. Basically, like, what model are you using to decide whether you want to go to the bar or not? And um, so <clears throat> the forward PE has been the number one model for 14 years in a row as of 2019. And by the way, it's underperformed by 46% over the last nine years, right? So everyone's using the same model and then therefore kind of negating themselves out and it's not working. Um, so say that again, the forward PE has been the most popular model, but it's also been, or it hasn't performed very well. Right, Exactly perhaps probably because everyone has been using it as their, as their number one factor. Um, so, but I mean, they have tons of different factors in here, like earnings surprise, dividend yield, beta size, return on equity, peg ratio, relative strength, like all these different um, machine learning, all this other stuff. So since 1991, earnings revision as one of the factors has been underperforming by 1.4% uh, per annum, when years when it's in heavy usage by everybody, <laughs> but the time when it's not in heavy usage, it's like plus four percent per annum. So, uh, and the average uh, model today or in 2019, they use 18 factors, whereas in the early 90s it was like seven or eight. Um, and really, what we're like John Maynard Keynes actually sort of described this problem a hundred years ago when he talked about this beauty contest, right where the you are trying to come up with what you think the the average person is going to guess is what the, they would say is what they would pick for the for a beauty contest right like uh, and then so you start to think like it, it becomes recursive where each layer down you're thinking well what's the average person thinking that the average person is going to think that they're going to pick for the beauty contest it's it becomes a total mind scrambler right to try to and really, all we're, they're really trying to figure out is it's, it's really a very complicated form of greater fool theory. Like, is someone going to pay me more later compared to, and, and am I using the factor that's going to be the one that's the winner who's going to allow me to pick over this time period uh, the thing that someone's going to pay me more for? And I, I, what do you guys think of uh, the El Farrell problem to start? Yeah, so that's a good summation of it, right? It's like, 
you're not necessarily trying, it's not, you're not trying to come up with a valuation. You're trying to pick which, which ratio best predicts the next 12 months. That's probably accurate. I would say maybe <laughs> I, it might be generous to say 12 months, but <laughs> are we so, measuring r- quarters or <laughs> quarterly? Yeah. Days? I don't know. So it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be noisy because there's the, 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 conf- the, I don't want to say confounding factor, but the, the thing that the, in, the influence is what other people are doing. Like do, do, do cheap stocks all on a PE basis all of a sudden become popular, in which case there are fewer of those because everybody's trying to buy the cheap stocks. So if your approach was to try and figure out which one best predicts where the underlying business will be in X period of time, do you still run into the same problem? Probably, possibly. You still get booms and busts in that scenario, right? Well, it, it's it always goes back to what is everyone else imagining, and are they bidding that factor up to a level where there's nothing left for you except maybe even underperformance? And you don't know what everyone else is doing a priori. So it's it it's almost as if this would be telling you that all of the. the the machinations of trying to figure out where the hell this thing is going and what's what's going to work is is perhaps uh, wasted CPU cycles. Yeah. So what's the solution? What's the answer? Wait, I got two quick thoughts. Ken Fisher, even though you're not allowed to speak his name, he who shall not be named. Uh, he used to do this when he would do his his uh, market predictions. He would always like he would admit that he's cheating. But what he would do to to uh, in order to come up with it is he would look at what everybody else has predicted uh, after the big money polls had closed. And he was like, all right, that's what's priced in. So that's what's not going to happen. And then he'd pick like the slices outside of that, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then um, the other uh, the other thought that I had was, I just think, I think forward peas hasn't worked because I, there's like a very real possibility that we are in the middle of, like a huge global asset grab for the next layer of the, you know, basically internet infrastructure. And there's like really rational reasons to reward people that are spending a ton of money. If that thesis is correct and their businesses are sticky, um, they would have more losses right now because gap requires it. Um, that like, it makes sense to me. Now, whether or not that, that assumption is correct is debatable, but I can at least understand it. Ken's dad, Phil, who wrote the book on uh, the uh, uncommon profits, common stocks, uncommon profits. He had a similar, there's a similar story in the start of one of his books, but it's not looking at where the big money goes. He looks at, it's just one of those competitions. And I think the prize was like a color TV or something back when that was, that was a big deal. Whoa. And they, they, they just got everybody's prediction for like where the stock market would close the next day. And everybody predicted, you know, like plus 0.5, plus 1%, minus 0.5, minus 1%. And then he just picked like plus 3%. And of course, that turned out to be the right thing. And he won the, he won the TV. And the, the, the prediction was not on the basis of that's what he thought was going to happen. He just knew that he'd be the only one out there predicting that. And it was just a wild move one side or the other. And everybody would forget the correct answer in the years to come unless it was sort of a wildly divergent answer so that was why he picked it which is pretty smart so he's 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 playing the game more than he's trying to figure out what's happening yeah yeah so i think that bill gave us probably the correct answer earlier when he named an individual security and situation that he thought made sense to him and this makes me happy took him away from (laughs) all the macro predictions and you know trying to factor in which factors are going to be the the winners over the next period of time. And instead just focusing on the business, focusing on the price that you're paying. Does that, the, the, the odds implied of the business results from the price that you're paying, do they make sense to you or are they under, uh, are they aggressive or are they conservative? And if they're conservative enough for your threshold of uh, what you feel comfortable with, then you proceed. And I, I think that's probably the smart way to play the game. And that's really the way that Buffett and Munger have been playing the game the whole time. The only criticism of that, and let me play devil's advocate because I'm, I'm a deep value guy. And this is one of the things that has occurred to me is that 
by virtue of the fact that you're always digging around in things that are conservatively valued on a conservative basis, are you missing out on some of the stuff that is very, very good and you should in fact be paying what is an optically high price for it in the moment, given yes. that it might have this behavior down the, down the track. The only thing is that's a very, very difficult game to play. Historically, forward PEs don't work. It you is, know, but growth doesn't pan out. But dude, the other side of that is like, think of how much money has gone into private equity. So like some of the cheaper companies that are smaller, I really think you got to be able to articulate why hasn't private equity bought this yet. And like, they get to see under the hood on a lot of these things. And going back to like what we don't know, I, I would not be shocked if a lot of things that are optically cheap are like truly shit shows under the covers. And like, you know, that that's tough. I know it always has been. And I realize that that's how value works. And I get all that. I'm just saying that as this market evolves and more and more and more money goes into private stuff, some of these companies that make me scratch my head and be like, why is it public? I'm not saying there's not a reason. Like there's plenty of good people doing smart work that say there's not, you know, there's a reason. But I think it's private of my checklist. Private equity is looking at the market too. Like private equity is not doing this independent of where the market is. They're looking at what what can I flip this back onto the market at. But private equity doesn't want to be stuck in it. They're, so they're, yeah. they're also influenced you, by what's happening in the market. There is a sell to the to the next dumb PE guy, if you can. There, there that, that tends to be most of them, yeah, for sure. And it seems that a lot of a lot of companies now are just permanently private equity from one fund to the next or from one firm to the next. Yeah. There's a great uh, quote from Temple 10 that draw, draws it all together. If you're going to be successful in selecting investments, you have to keep changing your methods. Don't have to change your principles, but you, you have to keep changing your methods. Keep getting better at what you're doing. I like it. You guys want to take some questions? I, th- I saw we got a, we saw, I, got, I think we got a, uh, some sort of uh, tip that was like a, in euros, I thought it was in euros. So thanks very much for that. Uh, I think it was, I missed the name. Sorry, it sort of scrolled by while we were talking, but thank you very much for that. I'll, I'll spend it on booze. Oh, it looks like we've devolved into some argument about the socialism yeah. in the comments. That's yeah. great. That guy, he's like obsessed with this lumber pump. It's like the second week he's been saying it. Uh, look, here's the thing, since I know some people who happen to be involved in talking about lumber on Twitter, um, the fact of the matter is I don't think anybody, uh, especially that came out of the Itasca crowd was arguing that you should underwrite lumber at 1200 bucks. I do think that when prices moon like that, it gets more attention but like, if you underwrote $1,200 lumber, like you're an idiot. Welcome to the market. Uh, you know, that's, that was your first education and you should learn to uh, be more conservative in your underwriting, you know, and if you bought it cause it was going up and you saw it on Twitter, also not the smartest decision in the world. Welcome to your first uh, education in, in trading. Now, why aren't people talking about it now? I don't know. Maybe when it's being painted red and force selling is occurring, it's not the most fun thing to talk about. That doesn't mean it's a pump and dump. People are trying to exercise their rights right now and there's no bid under the stock. So that's my two cents on what's going on there. As far as the United Healthcare Peloton deal goes, I have no thoughts worth sharing except for the fact that it's probably a pretty interesting deal. Peloton's got an interesting, uh, you know, they, some of the some of what has come out has proven the valuation to be less absurd than I thought it once was. And I've seen the operating leverage in that business. You still got to believe it's got a long way to go, though. I think I might be wrong, but what would you handicap the odds that that United would uh, would overpay for that asset? I, well, I don't think they're like, I think they're just giving subscriptions to their members. I, I Look, there's a very uh, okay. real possibility that Peloton, I, where, where my opinion on Peloton shifted last year was when I realized that it might actually be like very affordable personal training for everyone. And that's when I started to be like, oh, okay, I get this. When I thought that it was more of like a high-end equipment company, I was much less interested I was close to buying it with that recall. I didn't, but I was close. 
I got a good question here. Thanks to Colin Moore, who was the uh, we're, we'll spend it in an Irish pub. We're going to get three Guinnesses, Guinea Eye, in Omaha next year. Uh, this is the question, though. Any thoughts on the rising short interest in consumer durable companies on the view that the cycle is over and everyone is over earning? Restoration hardware, for example, is becoming a popular hedge fund short. BB, that's probably you, mate. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I. What the hell is restoration hardware trading at? Seven billion or something like that right now? Like I, I you know, I get shorting it there. I saw one of the clubs on Saturday. But valuation cool. shorts are fucking terrible ideas in my book. So uh oh my god, 13. Jesus Lord. Uh it's actually 14 billion, 15 billion enterprise value. Um yeah, I don't know. I never had short it. <laughs> no, I, I mean I wouldn't. That's exactly why I wouldn't. Right. I mean, exactly what I just said. I, I would never short that company. Gary has got unlimited ability to do whatever the heck he wants. People think he's a genius. He's might maybe actually pivoting the brand in the right way. Certainly appears to be, I don't know. You want to get in front of that train. Enjoy. There are easier games to play in my book. I'd short it after it rolled over. Maybe. I saw one of the, uh, one of the, I think they've got a, uh, the club, the Restoration Hardware Club, whatever they call it. I think there's one in uh, Beverly Hills, Hollywood. Had a look. Pretty cool. Yeah, they're sweet. It's, I mean, look, man, he's doing a good job with the brand. It's just, you know. Oh, yeah, the club, like you go there and drink? Yeah, it was closed though on a Saturday night. So maybe it was just too early. So I'm old. <laughs> but, yeah, okay. Uh, it looked no, pretty that's good. a big part of what they're doing. Um, dining and experience. I mean, it's it's a way to get people to be habitually introduced to a furniture brand that they otherwise would come back and make a purchase, you know, every five years or something you like are actually brought in and you're constantly reminded of restoration hardware. It's It's just like when I go to Ikea to get the meatballs. No, it's a lot different, (laughs) but similar. (laughs) You know, it's I mean, it's it's much more akin to Starbucks roasteries which I think are smart, right? Uh, I think it's, it's a great idea. Big advertising cost. There's a whole lot of mall space that's basically empty these days, right? So the only reason you need to go out there is for the experience. You don't need to go and buy something anymore because it's all delivered on Amazon. So you go out and hang out in a restoration hardware and while you're in there, you're like, this stuff is pretty cool. Wrap it up, send it home. I'll take it. Yeah, Nordstrom's was like, I think probably the pioneer in, in doing that, but they messed up where they put their stuff. Their Their dining rooms are like, in the back, like Gary sort of had the idea to make a lot of these dining rooms, the focal point, if not the focal point, somewhere that people want to go. And like, if you go to the one in Chicago, it's when you enter, it's right off to the left. If you go to New York, like it's got this sick rooftop, like you, you know, it's smart. It's a good idea. All right, team. That's time. That was fun. Next week. uh, The lumber King himself is back. So, to pump. Um, you, Greg, you can come directly at him. <laughs> and uh, BB's on vacation, and uh, then we'll be we'll be uh, around sometime after that. <laughs> All right, that's good. All right, have a good one. Cheers, everyone.